I'll be reading from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Well, I'm very happy to be with you today, and I'm very grateful for your presence as well. For those who are following along on the internet, we're very happy to have you through that medium, and we have a number who do. We're always encouraged by your presence here and by the number who follow along by means of the internet. We hope that you'll be back with us tonight at 6 o'clock as we will be meeting once again. We're in a series of lessons at 6 on Sunday night. We are studying the one-chapter books of the Bible. I call it a Sunday night seminar. I didn't know what else to call it, sort of a sermon, sort of a lecture. So I just call it a seminar. And tonight we'll be talking about Third John. There are five one-chapter books. They are neglected Bible studies, and so it certainly behooves us to consider them carefully. And we can learn a great deal from them. So I hope that you'll be with us on that occasion. If you don't have a bulletin, be sure to pick one up. And it gives um, a lesson, gives a synopsis of our lesson on Sunday morning on the front page. And it also gives us some news and notes about what's going on. And please pay attention to those things and cooperate with it as much as you possibly can as it pertains to you. I want to talk about taking a step backward so that we could take a step forward. And you might find that that's something of an unusual way to begin a sermon, and I suppose that it is. But as we read from Acts chapter 2, we see a pattern that's given for us that we need to follow very carefully and look at. I'm told the story of the Battle of Gettysburg, where the color bearer on one occasion to the throes of the battle stood his ground, whereas the regiment was told by the commander to pull back. And then when the regiment pulled back, but the color bearer just stood his ground and didn't pull back. And so word was sent to the color bearer, said, uh, pull back come back to the regiment. And he said, no, sir, bring the regiment back to the color bearer. Sometimes it takes a step backward to go forward. This generally is something I relate to very well because I'm always having to take a step backwards or two in order to make forward progress, especially when I'm in a new place and I'm driving from one place to the other. I was preaching at a gospel meeting in Missouri last year Fine gospel meeting, fine congregation of people, but I had trouble finding the building. And I got to be just a little bit nervous about the matter because time was marching on and, and I had to get there, so I stopped. And I stopped and asked someone uh, in a convenience store type of situation. They said, yeah, I know where it is, but you're going to have to go back about a mile and then turn right. And that road will lead you right to the building. Before I ever got to the building, I had to go back. And before I could make progress, I had to take a step backward. I suppose all of us understand that principle. We've all been lost, misguided, misdirected, and we had to start over again from a certain point. 
and starting over again from a certain point so that we can get to the destination is a good thing. That's one of the things that I admire so much about the Campbells and the Stones and the Walter Scotts and the Benjamin Franklins of Restoration Movement times, how that they were encouraging people to go back. Let's go back and look at it the way it was. Let's go back and read about it and see what they believe. Let's go back and read about it from the pages of the New Testament, and let's see how they did it. They were pleasing in the sight of God. We'll be pleasing in the sight of God if we'll go back and do it the way they did. And before we can really make spiritual progress like God wants us to and like we want to, we're going to have to go back. We're going to have to go back and look at it again and see just exactly what God wanted them to do and then do that ourselves. And I think that's much of what we can learn from our reading today in Acts chapter 2. We began the reading at about verse 42, and we continued on down to the end of the chapter, verse 47. And the thing that really impresses me about verse 47, and there's so much that can be learned from this second chapter of the book of Acts, is this point about, and the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. They were additions to the body of Christ. They were people who did what God had told them to do out of an obedient faith. And God was pleased with them, and God blessed them. And in turn, they received what they needed most, and that was forgiveness of sin. If you notice in the context of Acts chapter 2, in our effort to go back today, you'll notice how that the Apostle Peter preaches his sermon, and he comes about verse 32, and it's a wonderful sermon. And it's something that we should probably focus on from time to time, And he has basically five points in this sermon, but one that really comes to mind is this point about the resurrection of Christ. Then he talks about the resurrection of Christ and how that was fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Then he comes on down to about verse 38, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, verse 36. And in a figurative sense, their hands were still dripping with the blood of Jesus. And he uses the first personal pronoun, second personal pronoun, you, plural. You were involved in it. And it's a very pointed verse, isn't it? Acts 2 and verse 36. Well, when they heard that, Luke says they were pricked in their heart, verse 37. And I asked the question, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were pricked in their heart. The word pricked there is a word which goes back to a short dagger, which a Roman soldier would have in close hand-to-hand combat. And he would take out that dagger and run his opponent through. And he utilizes that word to show how that listening to Peter had run them through. And they were cut right down to the heart as to what Peter had proven to them in those five points. And they ask a great question, what shall we do? In verse 38, many of you are very familiar with verse 38 because it's such a pointed passage. They're told to repent and to be baptized for the remission of sins. And so in this particular instance, we see that the early church really grew, and it grew at an alarming rate, because as verse 47 said, the Lord added them to the church. 
They were convicted to sin. When they learned what they had done and how guilty they were, they were convicted in their heart. And then they were told to repent of sin and change their lives. Their heart now has been changed and the life needs to be changed in keeping with what they had learned. And they were told to be baptized for remission of their sins. And they'd receive forgiveness of this terrible thing which they had committed. It is only by a conviction to sin and a repentance of sin and a baptism for sin that you can have additions added to the body of Christ, Acts 2, 47. It's the only way it can be done. They were added to the body of Christ because they were convicted to sin. They realized how guilty they were. That's a hard job sometimes for people to realize just the sins that they've committed. The prophet goes to David and he says, Thou art the man. And when the prophetic finger was pointed at David, then he realized, I am guilty. And sometimes that's hard for people to recognize the fact. But when they come to the force of preaching and teaching of God's Word, they soon realize, I'm convicted. And I need to repent of sin. And I need to be baptized for sin. And it's because of preaching and teaching the Word of God that hearts are changed, that they recognize the sinfulness of their condition. And in doing so, they need to come back and be pleasing to the sight of God by their obedience to the gospel of Christ. Now, the Bible tells us in verse 41, some 3,000 obeyed the gospel. The word received there is an heirs participle. They had received at one particular point in time the message. They embraced it. It's a past tense verb. We have embraced the truth of these five points. Then they were baptized, another past tense verb. They were baptized for the remission of sins. And now, Luke says, they were added. They were added to the body of Christ because of their devotion and because of their conviction. And the early church grew in such a wonderful way because of additions. In Acts chapter 4, you see this happening again. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and a number of the men came to about 5,000. You can go on over to about... Acts chapter 5, see the same thing happening again in this particular matter. In verse 28, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. In verse 14, it tells us of the same chapter, And more than ever believers were added to the Lord. There's that word added again. Multitudes of both men and women. Found for us in chapter 6 of the book of Acts, beginning at about verse 7. And the word of the Lord continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, we could read this on and on through the pages of the book of Acts. The point of the matter is, when they are brought back to who and what they are and what they need, and when they obey that, 
they can make forward progress. It's going to take individuals to step back and study God's Word before we can ever make the kind of forward progress that we really need to make. The church will truly grow. Additions will come along. Now, if we preach the same gospel that was preached then, if we're talking about the same Lord and Savior in the same way that they were doing that in the pages of the New Testament, then it's going to amount to hearing that same message. What we also need, though, is the same kind of soil that they had then. For the church to grow by means of addition, we're going to have to have the same kind of hearts. Now, Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 13, a sower went forth to sow, and some seed fell by the wayside, and a fowl of the air came and devoured it up, and you remember the story very well. But some seed fell upon good ground, and it produced fruit, good soil. And they asked him, Lord, what does this parable mean? He said, now the seed is the word of God. The sower is sowing the word of God, and some will fall upon hearts that are hard, and they will not receive the word of God. But some Times people who have good and honest hearts will hear the Word of God and they'll respond to it. Good soil, you see, produces good spiritual fruit. And for there to be additions to the body of Christ and for the church to grow, we're going to have to have not only the right kind of seed, but we're going to have to have the right kind of heart. And we're going to have to have the kind of heart that says when they hear the Word of God, I'm convicted of my sins. I realize I'm guilty. And it was plainly put through the Word of God that I need to repent of my sins. And now I'm being told that I need to be baptized for the remission of sins. Just as in 41, the 3,000 did in the long ago. And when you have the right kind of seed and the right kind of soil, the church is going to grow by means of addition. Sometimes people don't understand we got to take a step back here and do this like they did it in order to take a step forward to be more what God wants us to be. Now sometimes people are joiners rather than additions. Now on a joiner, he's different. A joiner will come into a church building, and he will look and he will see, oh, what a beautiful building you've got. I love these facilities. Why, this is the most beautiful church building in town. I want to join. Sometimes a joiner will come in to a congregation and he'll say, there's a lot of prominent people in this congregation. Well, these people are movers and shakers in the community. And because of that, that would help me in my work and in my status and my ladder climbing. I want to join. You see, that's the way a joiner thinks. It's not conviction of sin or repentance of sin or baptism for the remission of sins. It's joining. Sometimes a joiner will come in. They'll look around and, wow, what beautiful facilities you have here. And you have this program and you have that program and you have this going and you got that going. And, you know, all of the beautiful people of the community are members here. 
and they're wealthy and they're well-to-do and, and it's sort of like a country club. I want to join. That's a joiner. That's not an addition. A joiner is one who comes in for his own reasons and his own purposes. He wants to join. He hasn't taken the step back yet. He hasn't gone back and looked at how did they do it. They were convicted of sin and they repented of sin and they were baptized for sin and they were added. And there's a difference between an added and a joiner. A joiner comes along and he says, well, I'd like to join up. In Matthew chapter 19, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus, starts in about verse 16. And he says, good teacher, what must I do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus has a potent question for him. Why do you call me good? Because only God is good. And at about verse 16, 17, you need to study very carefully Jesus' question to him. But at any rate, he answers him by saying, now keep the commandments. And he says, well, now which one should I keep? And he says, well, honor your father and your mother. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And the guy says, well, I kept these from my youth up. What more do I lack? And Jesus said, if you want to be complete, sell what you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. And you know what that guy did? He walked away sorrowful because he had much goods. Jesus wasn't looking for joiners. Jesus was looking for disciples. People who would study his word and apply it to themselves. People that would look deep down into the Word of God and recognize that this Word has been sent for me from God Almighty above. And I need this. I need to study this Word. And I need to look at myself as I look into it. It's a type of spiritual mirror, James says, that I see my own spiritual condition when I'm looking into the Word of God. That's a disciple. I want to learn. I want to follow. I want to do what Jesus has told me to do. Fashionable congregations today, denominational congregations, would have been happy to accept the rich young ruler on the basis that he come. But Jesus says, no, I want a disciple. I want a person that does it right according to God's divine will. John chapter 6 is a powerful chapter there. It comes to my mind as I think about this particular moment. Jesus is at a place called Bethsaida. Bethsaida is right in the north. I didn't get up to Bethsaida. We were close to that. We got to Tiberias, spent the night in Tiberias, went on up to Capernaum. Oh, what a trip. What a place, Capernaum. And uh, Jesus is preaching up at Bethsaida. And it's kind of a grassy knoll and it's right at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. It's just north of where the Jordan River empties in to the northern portion of the Sea of Galilee. And the people have followed him and followed him, and they're tired, and evening is coming. 
and the Passover is coming and the crowd is enormous. And they wanted to see what Jesus was doing and who he was and see the miracles that Jesus was performing. And Jesus said to his disciples, how shall we feed them? And they said, we ain't got enough food. We ain't got enough money to feed a crowd like this. And somebody, Andrew said, well, you know, there's a boy over there who got five loaves and two fishes. Jesus said, that'll do. And miraculously, he multiplied that material and fed the 5,000. And the baskets that they picked up, that doesn't include the women and the children. I don't know how big that crowd was. It was 5,000 men. It probably went a lot larger than that. What a miracle. The crowd stays. Jesus moves along. He tells his disciples, get into a boat and go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They want to go to Capernaum, but a storm has come up, and now it's hard for them. They're losing their the focus. They're off course. Jesus sees them at a distance, and he comes walking on the water. Through the course of the storm, they see this man walking on the water. They think it's a ghost, and they're filled with fear. Jesus identifies himself to them. He says, it's I. Don't be afraid. Peter wants to walk on the water. He said, come on, and Peter does. But when he saw the storm around him, he began to sink, and he said, Savior, Lord, save me, and he did. They're headed toward Capernaum, but they're headed... (laughs) They're in the wrong direction. They're not getting They're going too far south. Capernaum is further north from where they were going. And then when Jesus is in the boat, the boat now is right at the right place. Jesus is at Capernaum. The next day, the crowd is looking for Jesus. And they run all the way around to get to Capernaum and find him. And you have this statement in John chapter 6 where he talks about in verse 25, when they found him in the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now let me explain what Jesus is saying at this particular point. He says, you don't follow me for the right reason. It's hard for people, I guess, to see that the real focus of Jesus was the spiritual focus that the real focus of Jesus was a focus on man's need for forgiveness and salvation. In fact, if you look in this chapter, chapter 6, look up the word life and how many times Jesus says that. And in this sermon at Capernaum, what a marvelous sermon it was and what a place it is to visit. As I'm walking around the sides of the walls of the ancient synagogue, I'm thinking about Jesus in this great sermon about the bread of life. I'm the bread of life, not the physical bread. You eat this physical bread, you're going to be hungry again. It's the spiritual bread that you need. And it's hard for them to look past the physical. They're no different than we are. It's hard to look past the physical. Let us not follow Jesus for the loaves and the fishes. 
Let us follow Jesus for eternal life. And to do that, we must be convicted of our sins. We must repent of sins. And we must be baptized for the remission of sins. And become additions and not joiners. When I turn to Acts chapter 2 and read about this church and I think about we need to take a step back and be more like these folks and not be thinking in such a physical respect but thinking more spiritually with regard to our condition, I learned that at about verse 47 there's a phrase there that we need to take to heart. It's a beautiful verse. I'm in Acts 2 and the verse verse 47. You can read this from your Bible, you know. It says, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. Great verse. The thing that got my attention in verse 47 is the thing that these people now who had gone back and done what God had said through Peter and the preaching of Peter, they were convicted to sin, uh, repented of it, and baptized for it. The people on the outside, they saw what good people. They had favor with all the people, praising God and having favor with all the people. When the people on the outside looked and saw what they had, they wanted that. They saw how happy these people were because of what they now had received, forgiveness of sin. That's what they had received, and they were happy about it. And the attitude which they had is reflected in the lives. And people outside the body of Christ saw it. And they said, I'd like to have that too. The kind of lives we live exemplifies the Savior we serve. And if we don't live the kind of life that bespeaks such in the pages of the Bible, then we're not going to be attractive to people on the outside. After all, they're going to say, what do I need? What do they got that I need? Why, they're fussing with each other and they're fighting with each other. They're having all kinds of difficulties here and there. Their attitude is bad. And they don't live the message that they claim. They're just as much hypocritical and deceitful as anybody else is. You see, becoming a Christian, an addition, means I'm changing my life for what is right. Now I'm living after the teaching of the New Testament, Christ and the inspired apostles. You know what this verse reminds me of? It reminds me of Luke chapter 2, where Luke is talking about the early life of Jesus. And the very last verse of that chapter says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus had that same kind of favor. Others saw him and saw the life that he lived and saw that it was the kind of life that was attractive to them. It was the kind of life, in turn, that they could benefit from it and wanted to have it. Now let me be sure that we understand each other carefully because when those folks in John chapter 6 heard more about the bread of life, they didn't want it. Many of them didn't want that and they turned away. But in our study of Acts chapter 2 and the church, those people looked upon the church, they were on the outside, and they looked on the inside, and they said, you know what? I like what I see. They had favor with all the people. Jesus, as he was growing, had favor with God and in man, with man. The thing that bothers me sometimes, brethren, 
Sometimes, and I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to anybody else, our attitude is not what it ought to be. It is unnecessary for us to have a repugnant type of attitude toward others. We don't need to have that kind of attitude. We need to have the kind of attitude where others are important to us. We ought to have a winsome, gracious kind of attitude. Not an antagonistic type of attitude. And I'm fearful that in many respects, in some of our preaching, in some of our teaching, in some of our living, that we've projected a repugnant kind of attitude which is totally unnecessary with regard to others who are outside the church. They ought to be able to see a happy, winsome type of attitude upon the heart of the people of God, and that's a winning combination. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, the Bible talks about speaking the truth in love. It tells us in that instance, this particular passage is a one of what I like to call the walk passages. Walk is a metaphor for living. And if you see in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, you'll see him using that metaphor, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Paul was in prison in Rome at the time, be 64, uh, somewhere in there, A.D. Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now the calling to which we have been called is the gospel. We've been called to obey the gospel of Christ. Realize the significance of sin and Jesus, uh, Jesus paying the debt by his own, with his own blood for our sins. But we need to walk that way. We need to walk as worthy of the gospel. Now, no one can walk a perfect life. We just can't do it. That's why we have this wonderful, amazing grace. But at the same time, we need to come to understand how important it is to live it as much as we possibly can. And in the midst of this walk passage, Ephesians 4 is verse 15. And he tells us, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Now, if we're not careful, we will speak the truth in a repugnant type of attitude. And if we violate this prepositional phrase, in love, we might find ourselves in error if we're not careful. We've got to live the message that the Bible teaches us to, to live. It's got to be a part of our lives. We've got to be the example. Let me tell you something, brethren. The world is watching us, and they're watching how we live. And what will they see? Will they see Christ living in us? Well, we're good church-going folks. we got to go back. we got to step back to the way it was in the beginning. Let's step back and be what the apostles in Christ taught us to be. And then we can make forward progress. We've got to live this message. And if we don't, we're a hindrance to the message. If we have a repugnant attitude in how we teach and how we preach, then in turn, we're going to tell people, this is not the kind of life that I want to live, and they will be turned away. Let me emphasize a point again. They walked away from Christ, John chapter 6. When he taught them the true nature of himself about being the bread of life, many walked away. And he turned to his disciples and he said, will you also walk away? And it was Peter who came up to him and he said, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. What a truth. 
What a truth. Sometimes people will walk away, but let it not be because of a repugnant attitude and a mean-spirited heart. They walk away because they do not love the truth, and they're the hard soil rather than the good soil. An attitude and right living is a winning combination that simply cannot be beat. And let people look upon this beautiful congregation of people assembled here and look and see these people love each other. These people love Christ. These people love the Bible, the Word of God. These people want to do what God has told them to do. And that's a winning combination. I have just another minute or so, and believe me, I want to talk more about this, and I I will spend just an extra moment. And that is, I think that we need to go all the way back, step back, and give with the generous hearts that they had. Now, I speak very respectfully here, brethren, because I know I'm speaking to a congregation of people who love to give. You have proven that over and over again so many ways. Sunday ago, we had an elder stand up and tell us about the work that we're doing and how we've incorporated new works of children's homes and preaching the gospel on foreign fields and how we're contributing to those particular matters, important matters. And it was a very encouraging, uplifting time for us to hear the good work that this congregation is able to do for the cause of Christ because of your support and your continued love for the Word of God. So I know, I know that I'm speaking to people who love God and people who love to give. And you've proven that over and over again, and you've been so generous in all these particular matters. But each one of us needs to go back and look at the early church and how they gave. And when I think about that, I think about what Paul was saying when he was collecting that contribution for suffering saints in Jerusalem. And he's admonishing the churches of Achaia. These are Greek churches, you see. This one particular, 2 Corinthians, he said, let me encourage you to fulfill your promise to give and to get them, to motivate them, to help them do that. He takes them to the cross. He says, I want to remind you what Jesus gave, how he gave his life, and because of that, we have eternal life. Let me read a passage or two comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Giving is a grace, you see. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's 2 Corinthians 8 and the verses, verse 9. He's taking them to the cross. He's taking them back to Calvary. He's saying, let me help you, motivate you. I want to tell you about the one who gave everything for us. Now you fulfill your responsibility in giving to those who are in need. 
and they did. We need to go back to the cross. We need to be reminded of what Jesus did for us. 2 Corinthians 8, 7, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is a wonderful discussion about God loves a cheerful giver. I know I'm talking to a congregation that loves to give. You've been so generous. You've been so generous with me. Thank you. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your encouragement. But we've got to go back to Jerusalem. We've got to take a step back. And we've got to look for ourselves. How they gave of their means. It was an extraordinary situation. It was an emergency measure in the things that they gave and what they were able to do. But I've got to ask myself the question, am I willing to give as I've been prospered? Am I doing my duty as a child of God? I need to go back, take a step back and look at that and just see about my giving. Now, brother, I've got more I want to say about this, and I'll do it next Sunday, Lord willing. If the Lord tarries is coming, and if I have my health and elders give me the opportunity, I'll come back to this place next Sunday, and I'll talk more about taking a step back and what God expects us to do with regard to these particular matters, to grow spiritually like we should. I've made it, I think, clear enough in this particular passage that we're to repent of our sins and confess our faith in Christ Jesus that we are to be baptized into Christ for the remission of those sins. And it's the way in which we will be added. We'll become added. We won't become joiners. We'll be added to the body of Christ. And I hope that you'll think seriously about these particular matters. This song has been selected for your admonition, to encourage you to obey the gospel of Christ, to repent if you need to. And I urge you to do it now. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.